Welcome to the Business Diaries podcast, where we uncover the stories that shaped the business owner. Brought to you by Lisa Settle and Isla O'Hara. Welcome to the Business Diaries podcast. My name is Lisa Settle. And my name is Isla O'Hara. And we'll be your hosts for today. The Business Diaries is a storytelling platform for businessmen and women to share their stories, the ups and downs of the entrepreneur, giving us a look at the person behind the business and hearing about their successes and their failures. One of the popular topics for discussion over the last few years has been about productivity. So we thought we'd have a chat with someone who's worked all over the world measuring and improving productivity. We're also going to be treated to a story that tells you just how your job could change your life. Isla, who's in the guest seat today? Oh, thank you, Lisa. I'm delighted to welcome Linda Garcia to the show. Welcome to the Business Diaries, Linda. Thank you, ladies. Good afternoon. Welcome. (laughs) But before we hand over to Linda and we hear your story, let me tell you a little bit about her. As Lisa said, Linda is an internationally experienced productivity specialist, and she has extensive management consulting expertise. She now works with business owners to ensure that their organization is aligned to optimize productivity and maximize profits. So I think without further ado, Linda, I can't wait to hear your story about how working away changed your life. Thank you, Isla. Yeah, um, I've had quite um, a privileged lifestyle, I suppose, over the last 20, 30 years. Um, Not many people actually realise it, but I started off life as a biologist. So my first degree was in biology and I was working at the London Hospital in the medical microbiology laboratories. But that was really boring. And I sort of went on into environmental consulting. And towards the end of that sort of decade, at the end of the 80s, the word or the term management consulting was starting to hit my radar. I wasn't very sure what it meant, didn't know what really it was all about. But what I did know was that they seemed to be sending people abroad and they were travelling around the globe. So I sort of researched into it and discovered that, oh, if I go and do an MBA, a Master's in Business Administration, that would give me a little bit of more commercial focus than the more scientific background that I'd come from. So... I found the cheapest MBA that I could, which was at the Aston Business School, and spent a year doing that. And the first role that I was offered when I qualified with my MBA was with a very niche boutique consulting management consulting company who were mainly sending their consultants abroad. And so that, that sort of started my career in the management consulting industry. And in in the first year that I worked with them, funnily enough, I'll be coming up for the anniversary. I joined them on the 14th of February in 1991. And I was sent up to Scotland for a year working in uh, one of or consulting to one of the large um, whiskey distillers and um, bottling companies up there, which was brilliant experience. And that was my sort of my grounding uh, year. And from there, I was then sent to the States for uh, 10 months, actually. I was working in North Carolina in a small welding factory. So that was really my sort of green pea consulting days. Um, And from the beautiful, wonderful summer temperatures of 110 degrees in North Carolina, um, I left there in November and was sent out to Eastern Europe to work in a shoe factory in Hungary at minus 20 degrees. So that was quite a a shock to the system. (laughs) 
Um, and that was sort of the first few years of my travels with consulting. And at the end of that um, period or that project that I spent in Hungary, I was working in, back in the UK for the first time in like a year and a half and was working for one of the Northern Electricity Board. So we were doing a business analysis for them and the principal consultant was on site with us and it was a Thursday afternoon and he was asking me, so what are you up to at the weekend, Linda? And I said, well, I intend to be resting. It's been a pretty hectic week. And he said, oh, it's just because we've we've started up a new project and we've got the, the client task force training starting on Monday. And we were wondering if you'd be interested in, in going on to that project. And I said, yeah, that sounds absolutely brilliant. Where is it? And he said, Chile, which was somewhere that I hadn't actually heard much of and wasn't really sure where it was. Um, it's, and I obviously know it's sort of a, a 20 hour plane journey away in, in the very sort of far reaches of South America. So unbeknown to me, they'd already been planning for me to be um, stepping in as the consultant on the new program that was going to be going ahead for a client that they'd been um, marketing to for the previous six weeks. And I was promptly put on a plane on the Saturday afternoon. So I literally only had two days to get home, grab a suitcase and start to pack up my gear. Um, and I obviously my reaction was, well, yep, how long is it going to be? I don't speak Spanish. What do I do? He said, oh, it'll be about, you know, six to eight month program, which is pretty average in the sort of consulting programs that we did. So on the by the Sunday, I had arrived in Santiago, been picked up by the project manager. And that was my first sort of real expedition of, of uh, getting into South America. Um the interesting thing there was we got, we obviously started the training um, and unbeknown to me also, the team had met with um, some of the locals in the pubs that they'd been going to on the weekends during this previous six weeks. And um, on the weekend after my first week of working with the client, we'd gone to a bar and I was introduced to a gentleman um, who'd said, and they said, this is the English woman that we'd, uh, been telling you about that was coming down to to work with us and he had already been told all about me despite the fact that I hadn't found out until four days previously that I was actually going to be working in South America and that gentleman turned out to be um, the guy that I was eventually to marry in uh, two years later <laughs> so I first met my husband a week after arriving in Chile um, and I was in Chile and consulting around um the southern cone of South America into Argentina and Peru and Paraguay and other sort of far-fetched places for the following nine years. And I also then ventured that I was being sent across to South Africa, um, commuting between South America and South Africa, which was getting quite complicated. Um, Mario and I eventually got married in 1995 and we had a couple of children, Ben and Amelia, which with uh, Mario at the time was a naval officer. So he was also having to um, be away at sea on the operations that he was committed to. So I ended up starting to have to travel around with two children in tow, uh, which became increasingly complicated with our lifestyles. And so we had to start sort of after about three or four years of this, the children started reaching school age. And it was becoming very complicated for me to be traveling with the consulting projects that I was doing. And I was sort of being uh, promoted into more senior, more managerial positions. So I couldn't sort of say, no, I can't do this. And no, I can't do that. 
So eventually we did start to talk about we need to get out of our respective careers and we did take the decision to get back to the UK. But in the meantime, the consulting company had asked if I would be willing to relocate into South Africa. So we took the decision as a family that, yes, we'd go to South Africa, um, maybe spend a year out there to start to get some money in the bank and get back to the UK, which is essentially what happened. So we spent quite a, a lovely 18 months in South Africa, although that's quite a difficult country to work in as well. And eventually in 2003, we got back to the UK. Um, so having left with one suitcase, I got back nine years later with a 40-foot container, two kids and a husband. <laughs> That's a little bit about the, the background to my, my travels. Wow, yeah. Who knew when you set out on that trip, Linda, you know, that your life was about to change so much? Not, you know, not just gaining the husband and the two children, but it was also a massive lifestyle um, change for you, wasn't it, working out there? and quite, I, I quite think a shock to the system, I would yeah, say. Yeah, I think it's, it's true to say that Chile's way of doing things isn't really uh, the way we would do it. We're certainly more relaxed than our way in the UK. Yeah. And one of the things you mentioned to me off air was about a herd of oxen, um, <laughs> a, a little story there. T- tell us about that. Yeah, I've I've got so many little anecdotes of sort of things that you see and hear that you just sort of beggars belief. But um, as as part of the programmes that we were offering, the initial stage would be to carry out a complete business analysis, getting into the client's business with a you know a team of consultants for two or three weeks, and it would involve us getting right down onto the frontline workers, spending whole shifts with them out in the field to really analyse almost minute by minute. And I kid you not, we would be writing up the studies in the evening showing exactly what the workers were doing um, step by step. How about that? Were they, were they happy about that? Because that's a bit intrusive, isn't it? Well, you would think, wouldn't you, that it would, you know, they'd be absolutely sort of killing themselves to be as busy as possible. But to be honest, within sort of half an hour or to the, within the first hour of the shift, they'd almost like forgotten that you were there or they'd be really <laughs> pleased just to have somebody to talk to. Um, and that is what also amazes me is that, you know, you're sat there watching and observing these people doing their jobs and they don't seem to have any shame that they're not actually doing them very well or they're quite blatantly and openly, you know, wasting time or or just don't have enough work to do. Mm. But in this particular scenario that you were just asking about, the we were sitting there at two o'clock in the morning. This is the sort of lifestyle that you led, getting the studies from that day all written up, ready to go out and start another one the next day. And the consultant who had been out in the field was observing the um, teams that go onto the slopes of the forests. Um, they're, they're sort of felling pine trees for um, the timber and the paper production industry. And he was describing the process that these guys have basically arrived on site about eight o'clock in the morning. But they would use oxen to haul up the trunks that had been the trees that had been felled when they're on very sharp slopes. You can't get the machinery and the you know the haulers and the, the caterpillar tractors in there to pull, pull up mm. the the trunks. So he said they got there at eight o'clock in the morning. They were searching around for the oxen that were basically let loose in the evening to go and graze and, and eat. And it literally took them two and a half hours to find the animals in the forest. So by this time, it was like 10.30, 11 o'clock. And no um, one started work. 
no, nothing had started at all. But then to add sort of insult to injury, he was fully expecting them to then start working. And, you know, this the way the consultant was describing this, he was so incredulous. We were all absolutely splitting our sides with laughter. I'm sure. Saying, well, they found the oxen, pulled them back into the camp, tied them up to a tree, sat down, lit a fire and started preparing their breakfast. <laughs> So these guys didn't actually start any work until about half 11. So that was sort of three and a half hours into the shift. And, they, you know, they were only due to finish by four in the afternoon. Um, and that was an, you know, immediate, you know, indication yeah. that yeah. you're not getting the best productivity out of the workers. And that although that's a bit of an extreme example, that would be the type of thing that we would be seeing day in and day out in, you know, in the analyses and then actually going on to work in the project with the, with the client hysterical mm. and then we would have to present these facts and figures to the executive board in the presentations <laughs> to demonstrate to them this is what's happening out on the front line that you can't see um yeah. that, that yeah. sort of demonstrates there is so much opportunity in your business to improve your productivity and improve your profits it's amazing. One, of the, one of the things i'm fascinated about is is the traveling and just the differences in the cultures that you find yourself in. I mean, you were quite young when you were traveling, you know, yeah. from Eastern Europe over to Chile. You mentioned then your, your period in South Africa, you know, and to begin with, you're, you're on your own in a different country with, and you have to, as you've described, embed yourself into that team straight away. I mean, did you find, what were the cultures like? Was, was there hostility towards you? And did you, you know, was there anything? I mean, particularly you're you're a woman as well, maybe yeah. in a man's world. What what kind of cultural, historical, cultural um, perspectives did you come? Yeah, that that there's a whole can of worms there, Isla. In terms of in <laughs> terms of like being a woman in, in both in South America and South Africa, there is where it's incredibly macho environments. I mean, in in the south of Chile, where women are literally seen as the housekeepers, the mothers, the wives. And we would even see male secretaries, like male administrators um, in a lot of, you know, in the forestry companies and things like that. Women were very much not seen to be career people. You know, their career was not in businesses. It was looking after the children, bringing up the kids. That that was gradually starting mm-hmm. to unfold and open. I mean, bearing in mind, this was the 90s. Mm-hmm. But in terms of like the working culture, for example, in, in South America, they're very much more disciplined in the hours that their workers will work. So in the UK, um, and it's actually sort of coming to the surface now, there is an expectation that employees will and should be available within and without of their contracted hours. You know, bosses and business owners, especially I think in the SME arena, will think, yeah, I can just ping so-and-so an email or I just pick up the phone and talk to them. And it might be sort of six, seven or eight o'clock at night. In South America, what we saw was very defined working time. And once you'd finished work, you weren't expected to be available, um, which I personally thought was quite a good thing. The the working practices and the working methods were quite sort of questionable that, you know, the health and safety um, hadn't been as finely tuned and as, as risk-free as we see in the UK. I mean, I saw some quite really dubious working practices 
Um, but you know, it's just things that at a regulatory level hadn't hadn't even been considered or, or weren't yeah. part of their regulations um, in in that sort of sense. South Africa was a very difficult environment to work in because obviously of the massive um, racial discrimination that the, 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 although apartheid had been over years ago, the culture down there is still very difficult. I think that has to be the one country I was so pleased to be leaving um, mm-hmm. at the end of the 18 months that we spent there. Mm-hmm. Um, but also the the favoritism, I think, in both countries is uh, was you know, nepotism. If you're if you're one of the family, you would be automatically you know brought into the business I think I described the situation where I was working in a uh, consulting to a private clinic and one day I was in the administration area watching what the administrative processes were and there was a guy there sat there with a pile of papers pulling off the staples aligning all the corners beautifully and restapling them back together again and he was sat there for two or three hours doing this we raised this with the manager and said you know this guy just doesn't have enough work to do he's not doing anything that's really adding value and he said, no, he said, but it's the president's son, the president of the company, not the president of the, com- mm. uh, the country, I hasten to add. <laughs> so we can't do anything about him. He's there because, you know, they just want to give him a job and, and pay him something. But that as well, I do see in, in family businesses in the UK, and it can actually cause quite a lot of consternation between the employees and the family members that are supposed yeah. to be treated equally, but they're not. Um, yeah. So, yeah, that sort of cultural issues. And being a female, um, yes, that was interesting. I think being British and and not a local female um, worker, I was perceived slightly differently. Um, And I think executives and corporates recognise that outside of South America, women have got much fairer conditions and are not discriminated against as much as they are down there. Mm. But, uh, yeah, I, I did have struggled. I mean, you've been going backwards and forwards to Chile, obviously, since then. Uh, has it has it changed <laughs> an awful lot or not really? By small percentages, Lisa. I, I We've only been down there, well, we haven't been back since 2015 because of obviously pandemics caused travel restrictions and they're still not open up to non-Chilean um, residents. So I, I don't think it's majorly changed. Um, it's a very, it, Chile specifically is quite an isolated country, geographically and economically, I feel. So, no, I don't think it's it's progressed as much as we see in, in this sort of Western side of the of the world. Did you get a sense, though, that, that women were happy with the way things were? Do you know what? I didn't really have much dealings because at the board levels that we were dealing with, I, can, I think I can honestly say 95% of the executives were male. In Chile, mm. there were very few women on the board, so I couldn't get you know, a, a sense of how they felt about it. And so from a social perspective, we were mixing more with um, Mario's naval friends who, right. whose yeah, wives sure. were also sort of quite a bit younger than them, and I'm quite a bit older than Mario, which we won't get into. So there was quite an age gap. And, you know, and the, the, the people, the, the, the ladies that I was socialising with were getting married, having children, staying at home. One or two of them did have some quite strong career opportunities. I had a very good um, friend that was married to my, um, Mario's friend who was an architect. So that you know was a good profession and a good career that she was um, mm. going after. But generally they were mainly, you know, re- I don't know if it was resigning themselves to the fact that they were going to be mothers and, and you know, homemakers, et cetera, or that was what they were quite happy to do because 
that was what was expected of them and that's what the culture stated so yeah yeah interesting isn't it I I think you know it's fair to say you've traveled pretty extensively Linda and when when even when you had your first child or or both children and you continued to work on projects abroad how how did you manage to juggle that work-life balance the big question how did you keep the plates going yeah looking back I can honestly say I don't know we just, I just had to get on with it. The when when my first, my son was first born, luckily my husband was studying at uh, on so he was land based for the next three years. So he was really being the stay at home husband, although he was going out to work. Now in in South America, um, there are expectations. There's very good nursery schools and creches. So from a very early age, I went back to work when my son was seven months old. And he did go into a creche. He would be getting there at eight o'clock in the morning and my husband would be picking him up at eight o'clock at night. And that's what he knew. Um, Mm. In terms of how I reacted to that, that first year of working whilst uh, after Ben was born, I think I had my first panic attack in an airport when I was trying to, I was getting on a plane for the first time since he'd been born. And I felt the palpitations, the sweating and the sort of I was mm-hmm. finding it difficult to breathe. And it wasn't until a couple of weeks or months later I described this to someone and said, well, you've had a panic attack. And I think, mm-hmm. I, you know, I was always brought up that you don't, stress doesn't exist. You just have to get on with it, stiff up a lip. You just have to, you know, get the bull by the horns, all of those wonderful expressions. And that's how I used to operate. And I started to sort of get symptoms of what I now know was stress and exhaustion. I would be getting pins and needles in my hands, in my lower, all my extremities, from elbows down to fingers, knees down to toes. I was suffering migraines regularly on a Saturday morning, um, you know, after switching off on a Friday night from the week. And but I didn't recognize any of this. So when when Ben first came along, we were that was how we were juggling his first two or three years. And then Mario did have to start going back to sea. And basically, I would be packing up my stuff and Ben's on a Sunday night and he would be travelling with me. And wherever the project was based that I was having to be working on or consulting to, I would find a local crash and he would get put into another crash. So the, by the time Ben got to reception year at school, when he would then have to, we, we had to then enrol him in a school, he'd already been through about four or five crashes. Which, in different countries? Uh at that time, it was mainly Chile. Well, he was right. three when I did have to start commuting in and out of South Africa. So then I was travelling with Ben in and out of South Africa. Um, and that got a bit more complicated. But I was given sort of a, an annex accommodation with the director who I was covering their maternity leave. And she'd already got a nanny in the house for her own um, kids. So the nanny was actually looking after Ben while I was travelling. And even there, I was I was sort of leaving Ben on a Monday morning, popping into Zimbabwe for two or three nights, coming back on a Wednesday or Thursday. Um, and, you know, I, I felt terrible, but I didn't recognise what was going on. And then when Amelia was born, <laughs> that's when things really started to go, go wrong quite badly in terms of my health. I was suffering from stress and exhaustion, again, without recognising it. And Mario, by this time, was full full time back at sea. And there was one afternoon I was sat in the office in Santiago. Fortunately, my parents had come over for a six-week stay, which they only did sort of every second year. And my boss had called me from South Africa and said, I need you here by Friday. 
Um, we've got stuff going on on a project that you've been, I was managing it remotely and this will come into the the new sort of era that we're in now, you know, re- working remotely and managing people from, from mm. afar. Um, I was doing that in the 90s. And I'd said to him, I can't go. My husband's at sea. The kids are at home. My parents are over here. And he said, well, you have to come. So I literally had to ring my mum, ask her if she would be happy. Just He only wanted me over there for seven days. So I had to ring her and say, would you mind sort of babysitting the kids while I go off to South Africa? Mario is out in the Pacific somewhere. And she said, oh, yeah, I'm sure we'll manage. I'm sure we'll cope. And that's what we did. And that was like, I think that was the most distraught situation I found myself in. Yeah, because seven days isn't just like, could you mind the kids for a couple of hours? That's the whole week. Yeah, and and bearing in mind, you know, my parents are now in a foreign country. They didn't speak the language. They were living, you know, two hours away from Santiago anyway. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, it was a really traumatic process. And it was really... as Amelia started to get sort of to her first year and 18 months, that was when Mario and I said, we have to change. We've got to stop. And we, mm. we took the respective decisions to get out of our, our respective careers and made the plan to eventually get back to the UK, albeit via South Africa. And but then yeah, in retrospect, did you look back and think, God, you know, I was so unwell at that point or so so stressed. Did you recognise it then as thinking... You know, those pins and needles were, yeah. that was all about the stress. Yeah, it, it actually, it was, and unfortunately, it all manifested itself after we got back to the UK. So from 2003 up until about 2012, 13, I suffered 10 years of extremely poor health. Um, but from the build-up of that stress, you know, what it manifested itself in in later years and this is, you know, why I do sort of really warn people now, you've got to get your work-life balance sorted out early, mm-hmm. as early as possible, because mm-hmm. I didn't. And I ended up getting, uh, I, I lost my hearing in one ear through a labyrinthitis um, infection, which was, I was told later, stress-related. I got breast cancer in 2009, um, which I'm obviously fully recovered from, survived that, no problem. And then smaller things, I had... Um, gallbladder problems in 2012 but I I would seriously say it took me 10 years to really recover from the extreme physical exhaustion and mental exhaustion that I put myself through over that 12 years really Mm. Um, so yeah that's why work-life balance to me is key yeah absolutely and Isla and I have you know how many times have we heard this message Isla so many oh, yeah. times it's it's been coming back to us, you yeah. know, that people you, you don't recognise it whilst it's happening. No, no, or you it. ignore it. I mean, you know, I I didn't understand what stress was. I just thought, no, I've just got a bit of, oh, I've got a bit of bronchitis this week. Oh, I've got um, I, I ended up did end up with a, a full blown bronchitis and uh, pneumonia. Uh, I can't remember if that's the right one, but uh, it's yeah, safe you, to say you, that you were pretty pretty unwell. Yeah, disastrous. But as you say, you just don't recognise it. You just keep ploughing on and ploughing on. And, and and I was married to the company, not to my family and my husband, you know. Mm. And that's what we need to be recognising now in the 21st century. You know, and I think the millennials are starting to sit up and take notice that, no, that's yeah. not any way to, to live a life. And you can't give your best either. I mean, was I yeah. looking back, was I as effective as I could be in the business and as a mother and a wife? And the other thing that I did suffer from, and I still do to a certain extent, was the guilt I, you know, I didn't see my kids like realistically for the first five years of their lives. Mm. Mm. Do you think, so really, do you think 
I mean, I think, oh, sorry, Lisa, but I just think we've got the pressure that we put on ourselves. You know, we all want to do the best. We all think that, you know, we can try and do everything and, and juggle everything. And businesses as well want us to do everything. Yeah. Do you think that sort of that culture is starting to change, that attitude is starting to change within businesses, that they are becoming a little bit more aware? You know, do you think COVID and the, what we've gone through in the past few years is forcing companies to be more aware of what's going on with their staff absolutely <clears throat> i think even before covid there was a movement towards uh, much more mindfulness about mental health and well-being probably sort of maybe from sort of 2010 onwards i know you know the, the prince harry and william had really started to get that on on the radar um, mm-hmm. as a national issue and um, interestingly more recently the um, WHO, the World Health Organization, have actually um, classified burnout as a classifiable disease um, yeah. due, to, due yeah. to, you know, burnout from stress and exhaustion and anxiety through occupational, you know, hazard. Um, and that came out during the pandemic, actually. And I think what the pandemic has done has fast forwarded that whole agenda and already, you know, pre-pandemic, the millennial movement, like the Gen X or the Gen Z, um, are were already starting to talk about, you know, working full day week. We had the gig economy, you know, the, the youngsters now becoming self-employed and just taking the odd job here or, the, you know, the, what they preferred. So there was yeah. already a movement towards that. So I think the last two years has basically fast forwarded that. Yeah, it's um, accelerated it, hasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think it's so. interesting. I, I I want to move on just a little bit because at the beginning of the podcast, when, when we introduced you, we said that, you know, productivity had been a popular topic and that's the area that you've been working in. Certainly, it has been popular. It's related to attitudes about working from home. Um, I'm not sure where the ju- ju- jury is at, at, at regarding performance from working from home. I've heard stories coming from both sides of the coin. So, I, I'm interested to know how would you respond to the idea that maybe home workers are underperforming in comparison to those that are working in the office? What what's what are your thoughts there? I, I I do agree with you. I think there's a bit of a bipolar situation here. You've got the one extreme where it then because you know people at home are not visible to their managers, they have got the opportunity to be much more flexible about what work they do when and the managers or the business owners can't see what they're doing. And so you might get that level of underperformance. But from the other end of the spectrum, you've also got the, you know, the employees who feel, oh, my goodness, I've got to do more. I've got to prove myself because nobody's in the office seeing me being being really, really busy. And they are the ones that will end up, you know, not switching off at five o'clock or whenever their clocking out time is and be sort of there at at the screens or on the computers till six or seven o'clock at night eating into their you know, their yeah. own personal time, whether they're being productive or not is a completely different issue. True. And productivity is, it's a solid, tangible measurement. And, you know, a lot of people have this misconception that productivity is just doing, writing up your to-do list and then ticking it off and trying to get as much done as possible. But the, the real concept of productivity really does require businesses to have standards of time that a piece of work should take. And that is the one major missing ingredient that I've witnessed in the 30 years that I've been in management consulting. 
the you know there, there used to be the slightly overzealous measurements of the time and motion studies that started to become popular in the 50s and the 60s that's the 1950s and 1960s yeah the last century <laughs> which sort of did start to make the whole concept of managing productivity take a whole new level and that's when you know all the case studies started coming out of Japan and the Chinese manufacturing environment but I what I saw over the 30 years is that those that sense of getting standards of time completely disappeared to the point where um, businesses became so much more inefficient because they weren't giving their employees expectations of how long a piece of work should take and that's Mm. when you start to lose sight of have I got too much resource for the amount of work that requires doing, you know, some employees carrying the others and you get a complete mismatch and imbalance of how work is distributed between teams. And working from home has obviously exacerbated that because whereas a manager might have had their team in an open plan office or, you know, the call centres and all the administration offices where you can see what's going on, doesn't necessarily mean to say that because somebody is busy, they're actually being efficient but you've got the advantage of knowing whether they're spending two out two and a half hours at the you know on their lunch breaks or fifteen minutes every hour at the coffee machine or out for a fag break or whatever the situation is. Whereas when yeah. people are working from home, they do become invisible, and yes. that's where management capabilities and management skills. If you haven't got the right people doing that sort of management position, you're going to have no idea of how you're teams are performing when they're working remotely Mm, and I think that that's kind of people are realizing that now aren't they as it's coming full circle it's you know we were all working in the office then then we had no choice we were working from home and now it's trickling back to the office and um I I heard a funny thing the other day well I mean shouldn't laugh really but some a friend told me that her husband had, had called on a working from home team member to come into the office to meet with a client. And his response was, could you ask someone else? Because I'm decorating the house at the moment. Exactly. <laughs> well, if you don't laugh, Lisa, you just end up crying. Because, yeah, I can... But you're absolutely right. And that's the sort of thing you don't know what's going on. Um, unless, and that is where part of the work that I do with business owners is building it doesn't need to be complex, but simple management systems and management information that helps the employers show their their sort of their, their employees what they need to be doing, planning enough work in for their days or giving them sort of proper solid targets and goals and objectives. Mm. But then more importantly, checking in with them frequently enough to help them achieve those goals. And it's those yeah. checking points that requires a conversation or a meeting that again, I see very little of that in a structured manner happening in in the businesses that I consult to. I mean, similar to your example, there was I was consulting to a small sort of SEO web um, marketing agency, and we'd spent a couple of sort of hours talking through. He's got two employees. What work have they got for this week? Let's just analyse what they're doing this week. So the business owner pulled up the list of what he'd given each of these people to do. And I said, so how how much time are you expecting that to take? And he referred to another spreadsheet that he hadn't shared with anybody and said, oh, well, that's supposed to take about this long. I'm estimating that much for like, you know, writing a blog or whatever. So we said, right, let's match up those times to that list of activities you've given to each of those employees. 
And do you know what? When we did that, it showed that he'd only planned in about six hours of work for one person and about 12 or 15 hours for the, the other person. And they were about, you know, 10 and 20 percent uh, utilised each. So he hadn't mm. given them enough work to do. And yet, because he can't see the work that was being done, he had no idea how long it was taking them or whether they were finishing it. But he'd never looked at it in that way before. Shocking. That's interesting. It's shocking. I think that's a really good tip for, you know, listeners of our show to maybe look at the way that they're managing the productivity and their, and their staff. And my question is, we've, talked, we've touched on it a little bit in terms of standards of time and how time management has changed um, historically. But as we're coming out of the pandemic and hybrid working probably is here to stay. I mean, we, we don't know yet. Um, it looks like it's a, it's a trend um, that may be here to stay. Do do business owners need to rethink the way they're measuring productivity? And can you maybe give some top tips or KPIs to business owners who are perhaps listening to the show about how they could rethink how they're measuring their productivity? Absolutely. I mean, in terms of, let's start with the KPIs. If you do nothing else, at least get a fix on how many hours are you paying all of your employees. And if you've got 10 staff doing 40 hours a week, then that's 400 hours you've got at your disposal. How much time roughly should the work that they are supposed to do take? So that's the, you know, the hours planned. And then how long have they actually taken to do that work? So the hours taken. And that in itself will give you your utilisation, even if you don't measure the actual productivity, which is a whole different work that's another workshop completely so the hours paid versus the hours that they plan to do the work and then the hours that they actually spend doing it they're the, the, the top three things that companies should measure how you then actually use that information is through regular review meetings I advocate to all business owners every employee should have a one-to-one check-in with their manager at least once a week And to be honest, if you did that, you completely do away with the need for annual performance appraisals or the annual performance appraisal should become pretty sort of academic in saying, yep, you've achieved your goals. Here's your pay rise or you haven't achieved your goals. What do we need to do? What's your development, you know, personal development plan? So this is your providing, you sort of, you know, ongoing feedback, like, you know. Yeah, yeah. every week. That should be a regular management activity. And the irony to me is, Isla, you know, so many managers, oh, I haven't got time to keep meeting and talking to everybody or, you know, I don't want to be seen to be micromanaging. Well, the definition of a manager is somebody who gets things done through other people. And so if you're not actually interacting and managing those people, then you're not a manager. The, and that, that concept of management just seems to have gone completely out of the window over the last 15 or 20 years. And that's why business owners now are struggling when they've got teams working from home because they haven't had a formal process of, you know, planning, checking, monitoring, reporting, and then having a meeting to review. So the review point where where the action plans are are sort of generated from is, is in conversation and dialogue. And that need, you know, that's a coaching process that new managers have to be taken through to understand how to manage those teams. And, and, also I mean you're saying businesses you know we're referring to small businesses really in a way aren't we because you know obviously you have that structured um organizational tree as it were with with you you know you're top down with your managers and, and and everyone's reporting to everyone but in a business like mine for example you know you start off 
on your own and then you, you're adding people bit by bit and, you know, no one promotes you. No one says, right, you're, you're doing this, you're doing this. So these, I suppose, these posts, these um, tasks just get lost. Yes. Whether it's a small or a large business, the concepts of what needs to happen in terms of managing people are identical. In a small mm. business, initially, it's, you know, it's very easy just to manage two, three, four, five people as a business owner on your own. But as you're, you know, if you are growing and your plans are to become sort of more of a smaller, medium business in the future rather than stay at, you know, just a startup or a micro size, then you need to start make, putting systems in place to because there's only so much the human brain can absorb and manage at a time. And without the systems to be telling you what's going on and to start introducing your first level of maybe supervision, you know, just get one person in to deal with just the marketing or deal with just the operations so that you as the business owner can focus on the things that you are good at. But that mm-hmm. has to come eventually. And that is where, you know, the business owner can start to feel like they're not going to stay in control if they're not managing everybody all of the time. And But they will actually not be able to grow their business if they're trying to do all of that managing, you know, of the, of the, mic, the micromanaging of the detail you have to start stepping out and I I Mm. call it find your escape velocity you've got to get into a more strategic orbit even if it's just like one day of the week or four days a month or something and that's where it's the management information that you need to build so that you can have that comfort zone and keep your finger on the pulse of what is going on in the business but without having to be there 24 7 the numbers should give you the answers and then you would build into your um, time management those meeting points to check in and have the qualitative conversations with the people that you are holding, you know, accountable and holding responsible for doing the work and yeah. giving them the opportunity to actually just get on with the job. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Does that make sense? Does that yeah, it does. It, yeah, it does answer the question. It's, it's really, really interesting. And I, I, I think that for anyone listening, it might sort of open their eyes and make them think, well, do you know what, maybe, maybe I need to make some changes <laughs> now. <laughs> so Linda tell us what what are you working on now um I've I've got quite a few things going on um I'm, I'm a trustee on a couple of charities with I'm a mentor at the Kent Foundation um right. and at the moment I'm sort of delivering master classes I'm, I'm also an industry partner with producing Kent and I, as my under my membership I have to deliver a few hours of um, complimentary consultations to their members so I've got a master class that I'm delivering at the end of February nice. and I'm also offering a master class to as a sort of an open class to anybody who um, wants to join there's a link through Eventbrite to give more details but the masterclass is very specifically what we've just literally been touching upon is how to free up time to make more money for your business and it's a sort of a little bit of an introduce an introduction and a taster to how I work with business owners um, sort of working through how do you define what your overarching business objectives are to then be able to start determining how do you need to plan your ideal week or your ideal month to ensure that you've scheduled in what I call sacred time, clinic time, for your proactive, non-urgent tasks. And you'll, you'll recognise a quadrant coming out of this. Mm. <laughs> um, so it's getting that scheduled in and diarised as sacred and it's non-negotiable. 
so that you can then identify how much time you've got left in the week to do everything else that you want to do. So it's quite a powerful um, sort of workshop. It's online. It takes it's about three hours and it's not me just presenting by PowerPoint. It's a real interactive workshop. So there's only about maybe six to 10 people on the call at a time. And that's a really good starting point for business owners to determine what do they need to do. So that that's a masterclass that I've got on the there probably be the next one is in May. That sounds fabulous. So how do people get in touch with you, Linda, if they want to find out more? The, you can email me. My email is Linda at aluxi.co.uk. Aluxi is A L U X I. And I think are you going to post the link to the blogs and they can also go to my website where my events are held which is aluxi.co.uk we'll definitely yeah, we'll put that in the show yeah. notes yeah, yeah we'll put them in the show notes oh and, and my you... mobile phone number as well happy for that to go up oh you, thank you on, for that. On, okay yeah okay and and is there what was the scorecard where where's that that's on the website that people could... good point thank you yes and uh, that might might the aluxi business success scorecard is sort of a starting point when owners business owners approach me to say you know i need a fresh pair of eyes looking at my business and it's a completely free scorecard and it helps you analyze how you how you perceive or how your business currently scores in 10 key success areas and that you can access completely free of charge. It takes about 10, 15 minutes. If you if it takes longer, you're thinking too deeply, you need to respond with your gut reaction. Mm. And that's at um, aluxi.scoreapp.com. Score app, as in OPP. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's quite a powerful tool. <laughs> yeah, sounds good. Sounds good. So, yeah, everyone yeah. get over there and, now. Yeah, and if, if, you know, anybody that does that, they will get um, an automatic email coming through to invite them to a breakthrough session, which is valued at, it's only £125, and that gives you an hour's consultation with me using your results to pinpoint how you can move forward to really optimise, you know, the productivity in your business and optimise profits. Fabulous. Well done. Gosh. Well, here we are. <laughs> we, the time's run out again and we're at the end of another podcast. Linda, we've loved hearing about your adventures and, of course, discussing the subject of productivity. Thank you so much for joining us and enlightening us. It's It's been really interesting. Um, Isla, what have you taken away from today's discussion? Oh, there's, there's been so much. I, I, I think for me it's about – it's two things – I always have two. I always have more than one takeaway, but I think <laughs> she's two, such a treat. Yeah, I know. Um, <laughs> I think one is to make sure that you have those regular check-ins with the people that you're working with. I mean, we've talked about management, and we've talked about micromanagement, and we've talked about productivity, and we've talked about burnout. You know, so many topics that we've discovered, and I think a lot of these, a lot of these could be avoided if we talked better to those that we work with. So I think I'm just going to stick with that one takeaway. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I mean, mine's sort of very similar, really. I mean, I've loved all the productivity tips. uh, But again, we've been reminded of of the danger of burning out and how sneakily it can creep in. Um, So, you know, I think that that's a really good thing to take away as well, um, because I think there's a lot of it. You mentioned it. Uh, Linda and I've, I've heard it before and I think even uh, I think it as well we don't think that we're perhaps people that are affected by stress or that we're particularly anxious but you know anxiety creeps in in just a little corner of your life it doesn't have to be in every aspect 
And I think that's where we sort of don't recognise it. It's so interesting that you meet so many intelligent people who have so much going for them and yet they don't recognise when they're unwell. We're in denial. Yeah, absolutely. So... um, so thanks for that. You know, really, really appreciate everything that you've you've said today. You're welcome. Thank you. It's, thank it's you. Great. So thanks also go to Paul Cheese, who's our magic sound man. He made our jingle, which is a lovely little jingle that uh, we all dance around to at the beginning of the show. <laughs> well, I do anyway. Isla, are there any other announcements before we go? Just to... Um... For you, the listener, to please let us know what you think. If there's some thoughts or top tips that you've taken away from a particular episode, we'd love to hear what those are. So please get in contact with us. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at The Biz Diaries. Wonderful. So that just leaves us with you, the listener. Thank you for tuning in. And we hope you've enjoyed today's story and the discussion and that you'll join us for the next one. Bye for now. Bye. We hope you have enjoyed listening to this edition of The Business Diaries. We would love to hear your feedback. Please find us on Twitter and Facebook at The Biz Diaries.